Beauty is the splendor of truth. This is the classical definition of beauty. It is a sensuous experience of the truth, a truth that is so deep that it can't be spoken with mere words, that when experienced, resonates with the entire body. The church, at one point, was fluent in the language of beauty, intuitively understood that the gospel is so precious, so multifaceted, so deep, that it can't be just communicated with words, that it needs to be expressed in a sensuous experience of that deep truth. I've devoted the last 10 years of my life to the question of how we've lost track of the fluency of the language of beauty. How did we as a church go from this to this and this and this and this. My experience of this question has led me into a deep wrestling with something inside of me that I realized was there. So I thought that if I could just explain good design, better websites, better beauty, better aesthetics to the church, that I would be able to make a change and I realized that I was pointing at the wrong problem and that the problem was inside of me. To elucidate that for you, I'm going to share an experience that I had of beauty. When I was a young boy, this is the 90s, the late 90s, maybe the early thousands actually, and I'm on the top of a creaky bunk bed at night with a CD player, little Walkman, and styrofoam headset, listening to the Mark, Tom, and Travis show by Blink-182. Anthem part two. And Tom DeLonge, this master of punk rock, sings out in this incredible, soul-screeching voice. Everything has fallen to pieces. Earth is dying, help me, Jesus. And I felt inside of me this deep truth that somehow this other person from across the world had uncovered and transferred over to me, resonate through my whole body. And I was like, bought in to the rebellion of punk rock from that moment. And I became a proselytizer, an evangelist for punk rock. The first thing I did was I burnt every single one of my friends a CD, except I didn't burn it for my mom, didn't want her to know, but I wanted to share this beauty with the world. I learned how to play guitar, and I tried to be like Tom DeLonge. And I became this evangelist of punk rock all the way until I had a second experience of beauty that changed my life forever, and that was the experience of Jesus at a Steubenville conference, which was better than Warped Tour, because 
all of these different types of people were represented there with this festival of music and song and dance and joy. People were standing outside with free hug signs and there was love in the air. It was like this was what Warped Tour always wanted to be but never had the true vulnerability to understand what it was reaching for. And I was bought in. I had an experience of God in adoration and I wanted to, sh to share that experience of beauty with the world. And what I did when I got home was I immediately logged on to AIM, <laughs> joined a chat room, uh, and began to debate with all of my atheist and liberal friends about whether or not God existed. And I want to point out the difference between the two responses because I think that it says a lot about how Catholics instinctively want to communicate about the faith. You see, we are very bad at sharing the CD of our experience. We want to go, and our initial, our initial instinct is to share the sheet music and debate about how good the notes are. You see that third chord that you know, we hit there? That was really good. Like That's why this is the best song in the world. No, play the music. I've been wondering, how did we get to this place where we have forgotten how to share the CD of the faith? I started Facebook groups and to talk about this. I started a, an agency and a firm to work on this project of how do we make the church more beautiful. But that took me into an understanding of the scriptures that I had never seen before. I want to go back with you to the founding myth the story of Adam and Eve, two people naked in the garden. And I hear very often that the temptation that Adam and Eve experienced was a temptation of pride and self-reliance. And I think that that's actually a grave misunderstanding of the temptation, because if you listen to it, the serpent says, in the deep subtext, there is not enough God to go around you need to look out for yourself. God wants to keep divinity to himself. It's scarce. He wants to hold on to it. And if you want to be divine, you need to look out for that yourself, for yourself. He's tempting them into a mindset of scarcity while they're in a garden of abundance. And what happens to everyone whenever they enter into that mindset is they create the scarcity around them. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. How does that happen? Right after they're ejected from the garden, we see the story of Cain and Abel, where two brothers enter in to competition with each other. When scarcity happens, competition is the immediate next step. It follows on its heels. Envy and murder. What happens when envy and competition and murder enter into the picture? Language breaks down. The story of Babel comes directly after, early on in Genesis, and it's the place where we see language breaking down. And again, Every time I hear about this story, when I hear somebody talk about it, the story is described to me as a sin of pride. These people all fell. 
They were unable to work together because they were all proud. And I think that, again, is a misunderstanding. Because when they build the tower to heaven, building a tower to heaven is not a prideful thing to do. Every one of us, when we're entering into collaboration with each other, are trying to build a tower to heaven. We're trying to reach for something that we've seen in the sky and in the stars, in our dreams, and we're trying to make that real in the world. But we cannot do that if we cannot communicate with each other. And we cannot communicate with each other if we look at each other as rivals. If we are cane enabling each other and saying, well, that part of the building, that's my part of the building, and I did that, and I want to make sure everyone knows that I got that part down, and that's mine, there will be no hole made. And I posit that the reason why we're beautiful, we're not beautiful as a church right now, is not because we're bad at design or we don't have good artists or because of modernity. I think that it is because we are in a crisis of communication with each other as rivals, where we are full of scarcity and envy, and our communication is broken down on a personal level with each other. Our tower is crumbling. The ruins of Babel, the ruins of language, and the ruins of communication. And if we're going to solve the problem of bad websites, and ugly churches, and bad music, we have to start by becoming people who are willing to step out of our envy of each other and testify to abundance. This is an abstract statement, but I want to point out something about how God does it in the flesh. God knows that humanity is entered into competition with him, And so he speaks to us in language over and over and over again. But we cannot understand. And so in order to restore language and communication with us, he becomes vulnerable and sends his son. He shows up on the scene as a baby. And when the world sees him as a threat, when the people he loves and the people he came to save see him as a threat and crucify him, he lets them make him and strip him naked and put him on a cross. Jesus becomes a testimony to the garden while the world is willing to crucify him while scarcity is the present reality in front of him. What I want to suggest to all of you is that the way out of the problem that we're in and the darkness that we're facing as a church right now, the pain and the conflict that we're experiencing, right versus left, and diocesan ministry versus parish ministry, or the youth ministry project versus the 10 a.m. mass in the morning. That the way through this painful and difficult time is actually going to be learning how to become vulnerable with each other again and becoming naked like Christ did to the people 
who we see as rivals. I want to posit that if we want to understand where we are failing as a church, that we have to start with ourselves and ask, who am I envious of? Because that will lead us to an answer about where we are not willing to trust God and where we do not believe that there is enough God to go around. And I want to give you a methodology for how to do this by telling you a story. I experienced the most amount of envy in my life when I turned 30. 30 is a benchmark for any Catholic who is single because at that point, everyone around you decides that it's now their, their turn. You've had a decade to figure it out. Now we're going to help you find your significant other, right? Uh, there's, there's a certain just like moment there where you have to look back and be like, what did I do wrong? And when I turned 30, uh, a week later, my brother got engaged to his girlfriend and uh, my girlfriend and I broke up. And I was head over heels in love and it was a very difficult thing for me. Uh, and I had had this long-standing deal with my brother where we were going to plan each other's weddings. And so uh, I was put in charge of planning the feast for my brother's victory while I was, uh, while I was staring at the shambles of my own love life. And this is kind of an ironic situation to make matters worth, worse. God had really cranked up the notch on this because my sister-in-law, her wedding party contained my two last ex-girlfriends. Uh, so I was planning the wedding and giving the best man speech while looking at the shambles of my love life right in front of me. And uh, I will tell you, it's a very funny situation and I can reflect on it, but it was difficult for me my instinct was with this twin brother that I had, who I love deeply and cherished deeply, to stop entering into intimacy with him. I was tempted to hate him, to sabotage him, to cut him out, because he stood as a symbol to me of how God was not faithful to me in my life and there was not enough God to go around. And I was locked up and I couldn't create. I couldn't enter in to the party. And what God told me to do, as I was at the end of my rope, he said, I want you to write a poem for them. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to write a poem for anyone before, but much less tried to write a poem for someone who you were upset with. Uh, but it is a very, very difficult thing to do. But what happened to me was that the process of writing it switched off the part of my brain that was in fight or flight mode and helped me enter into a garden of vulnerability where I couldn't just, it wasn't just an act of, of like sharing something that was, I was trying to, to mortify myself. It like healed me. The process of creating around that healed me. And it made me able to enter into the party. There's a lot of people who are talking about vulnerability right now, and I think it's a really big buzzword. But I don't know a lot of people who are really doing it like Jesus did it. By using their bodies to restore intimacy with the people that are angry with them or that they're angry with. 
bodily communication is the language of beauty. And if we want to restore language, to exit this Tower of Babel experience that we're in as a church, I think that we need to become fluent in the language of the body. What does that mean? How do we do that? Well, it's certainly not by going on social media and splurging a lot of things about what we're upset about or the ways that we've been harmed or victimized by other people or by the church. True vulnerability comes by moving beyond the word, the abstract, and into symbolic language. That is an embodied truth. The language of beauty is to give someone the CD of what is inside of you. One thing that I would say you could do is write a poem for someone that you are in conflict with. Try it. Maybe you don't even have to read it to them, but try doing it and see what happens. Maybe if you are having conflict in your office, start your next team meeting by listening to a song that you love together. It's a pretty radical idea, but there's something about beauty that will restore intimacy. I want to leave you with a poem that I wrote because I want to practice what I preach. Those days of burnt punk summers onto CDs, rolling skateboards on pavement, and that night when we streaked through our neighborhood golf course as if to say, this world could be different with so much less hiding. But later in seminary, I put down my guitar, cut my hair, tucked in my shirt, and became a soldier for the right amount of Latin in the mass or the right placement of the candles on the altar. But now, I want to be saying, this is my body given up for you. Thank you. Thank you.